0: It's a good morning. Thank you for being here today. It's uh, what a tumultuous week this week. Um, We got to seek the face of God and ask for his divine help. I don't know about you, but I had a great week. We, uh, We finished our kitchen project that included refinishing cabinets and repainting the walls, and that was really a delightful thing. But we rejoiced when it was over with. So a lot of our extra time, whatever extra time we had, late night, early mornings, we uh, we were busy doing that. <clears throat> I really believe that God gave me a word for Wednesday night. He really just spoke something to me, and I shared that Wednesday night. And I just feel that He's given me a word today to encourage you. You know, and He's really showed me how to pray this week. Um, I, I think probably... Amid everything that has commanded our attention this week in an election week, I can honestly say that I really believe God could speak to me because starting Tuesday, I just have not watched television, have, didn't watch election night, didn't watch anything. Um, <coughs> I did confess I watched a little bit of football last night with Clemson and Notre Dame, but I just can't pull for Notre Dame. It just doesn't matter. But I, I went to bed before that was settled because, you know, I was tired. But I, I think when we when we guard our thoughts, when we guard our mind, we guard our time, I believe it opens a door for God to speak to us. Because of whatever we're thinking, that's what we're thinking. It's kind of hard for us to think otherwise when we got stuff coming at us and all kinds of things going on. And God, I think, wants us just to... to just you know tone down that distraction and that clutter so he can speak to us and so my message today is quite simple it is God is for you God is for you and that's a simple statement we say that but I hope that we can dive into how deep that statement is that God is for you we sing a song from time to time I am who you say I am, and then the bridge, it says, you are for me, not against me, and I think we all ought to say, thank you, Lord, that he is for me and not against me, he's for you, not against you, I am who you say I am. But I want to take you to, and I am probably got way too much material for this morning, so Buckle up, we're going to try to get it all in. How's that? We're going to go to Romans chapter 8 first. That's one of the great chapters in all of the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, that and 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, there's just a handful of chapters that just like are powerful. And chapter 8 of Romans is, man, what truth is layered in and all of that. Toward the latter part of that Chapter He uh, talks about whom He foreknew, He predestinated, and He takes us all the way through that we've also, in His eyes, we've already been glorified, even though we're not glorified yet. He says, God has looked at us in almost like a past tense that He foreknew, He predestined, He called us, and He's glorified us in His mind. He sees us with Him because there's no past, present, or future, He is the I am. And so after he says that, verse 31, he poses a question. And the question is, what then shall we say in response to these things? And these things are that he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he glorified us. And he says, in light of that, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he kind of clarifies it in the very next statement. He makes a statement, and then he, he just asks a lot of questions here near the end. You know, what can separate us from the love of God? It's, it's just a series of questions. And verse thirty one is a 32 is a statement and a question. He who did not spare his own son. Think about that. God is for you. So, he that spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What a powerful statement and question. Graciously give us all things. And most assuredly, part of that is our covering, our protection, our security. If God is for us, who can be against us? So let me take it a little bit beyond just that statement. The triune God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three make up that one true God, and it's in complete unity, complete function, perfect union, and it really is a strain on our minds to comprehend this truth, that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is one God. Three persons expressed in one God. My Muslim friends that I got a chance to talk to at Starbucks, a, a few years ago, and I still can contact one of them because I know where he works, so I, I go by and check on him every now and then. And I really believe God must have done something in his life. But they could not comprehend that Jesus could be the Son of God and there's a Father and there's a Holy Spirit because to them, that's three gods. And this is, this is how human logic gets in the way of us just accepting that God is the God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all three of them, in perfect union, perfect harmony, all three of them are for you. And then we say, as God is for us, we, we, we see that statement, but we almost see that as a singular activity. But it's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit involved in that. Now, in the third and fourth centuries of the, of the early church, a rogue priest by the name of Arius started attacking the divinity of Christ. And he started teaching in churches that Jesus was created. He's not eternal. He wasn't divine. He was created by the Father. And and it just started kind of getting a little bit of a momentum in the church. So in Nice, Italy, there was a council called to deal with it. The leaders of the church knew that they had to do something because Arius, his heresy, was gaining momentum. And so they... They met at Nice, and they came up with a description of the Trinity, the the triune God. Now, I I believe you're going to see that. It's rather lengthy when it comes to the Son. And the reason why they put so much emphasis on who the Son is in the Trinity is because Arius was wreaking havoc in the churches with this heresy. So follow this with me. We believe in one God. Maybe you're not prone to look up the uh, the Nicene Creed that was made at this council, but just you're getting an introduction to it. How's that? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And here we go in this long description of who Jesus is. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, begotten, not created. And even C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity deals with it and and he references this creed and does a marvelous expression and explanation on begotten as opposed to being made of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And here we get to the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And Catholic, the definition of Catholic is universal. It's not, I remember Brother Strader saying Roman Catholic Church is an oxymoron because Roman is a, an exact location, Catholic is universal, so how can you have a universal church located in one place? Are you following me? Well, that, that just stood out in my mind. But that, that's why it's Catholic. It's, it's the universal body of Christ, not necessarily a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. So this became the position of the church in the 300s and 400s, when they met there and they came up with this description of who the Son is. Now, here's the Trinity expressed in terms of relationship and function. That's what we just read. And I share this because we need reminding God as far as who is God God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. And altogether, the Godhead dwarfs any challenge to your life. When God is for you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all for you. They're all on your behalf. They're on your side. They're not against you. They're for you. I think sometimes we need reminding of that. That the the triune God who created all things is directly interested in you as a person. And not just you as a person, but how you are living your life and how he wants to work in your life and the plan that he has for your life. You were created for a specific purpose, every single one of us in this room. We are not here on this earth by accident. We're here by divine creation. And God wants us to know, no matter what's going on around us, that he is for us. And then we can trust him. Now, we're in a a fellowship, the Simmons of God, founded in 1914, In Hot Springs, Arkansas. And one of the things they had to address is we need a statement of faith. We need to express what is our doctrinal position. So they came up with 16 different statements. And the first one is rather short. that The word of God is inspired. It's without error. It's God-breathed. But the second one is the one true God. And it is by far the longest description. It's got several sub- points to it. And one of the subpoints points I want to show you, if, if we can get that up on the screen, it's the unity of the one being of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you can see the effect of the Nicene Creed in all churches, whether it's Presbyterian, there's different confessions, and all of them come back to that Nicene Creed where the apostles' teaching was on the line. They had been dead for over almost 300 years. And here the, the churches in in leadership of the third and fourth and maybe fifth generation of believers. And it was fragile at that point with Arius doing what he was doing. So here's how this is just one paragraph of this long description of the Godhead. Accordingly, therefore, there is that in the Father which constitutes him the Father and not the Son. And there's that in the Son which constitute, constitutes him the Son and not the Father. And there is that in the Holy Spirit which constitutes him, the Holy Spirit, and not either, the Father or the Son. Wherefore, the Father is the begetter, the Son is the begotten, and the Holy Spirit is the one proceeding from the Father and the Son. Therefore, because these three persons in the Godhead are in a state of unity, there is but one Lord God Almighty in his name, one. So this is the challenge we have in trying to understand the Trinity. Three persons, one God. But early in the Bible, we get this sense of that. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the very next statement says, and the spirit moved upon the face of the waters. So automatically, we see the Trinity involved. And he says, where's where's the sun at in this? Well, 25 verses later, God says this. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let us make man in our likeness. And he will be over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the animals, over the small crawling creatures on the earth. And verse 27, he kind of captivates it again and so God created human beings in his image and he says we want to make them in our image in our likeness in the image of God he created them he created them male and female I think it we need reminding that God created man in his image and likeness God created Eve in his image and likeness together they are the expression of God and together they have the capacity to create. And they are the only ones, only living beings on this earth that creates something eternal. Because when a child is conceived, it's just not body and soul, there's spirit in that child that is eternal. And God created them in his likeness for them to be in union as he The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is in union. And that is why in Ephesians 5, that he said that a marriage between a man and a woman is the picture of Christ and the church in perfect union, that when you see a biblical marriage, you are witnessing the closest picture of Christ and the church. Isn't that amazing? So God is for us. And the question is, who can be against us? Now, I like to answer that question this way. It doesn't matter. Does it? doesn't matter who comes against us. It doesn't matter what comes against us. Because all three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in your life. And they're involved in your salvation. They are involved in your protection. They are involved in your hope, your peace, your joy. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit is constantly working in our lives in all of those areas. The unity of the Trinity is to be produced in us. We are to be in unity as they are in unity. So we're going to dive into Corinthians, if you want to follow along here. I have way too much food that i prepared today, but we're going to serve it, all of it. How's that? Paul wrote at least two letters to the church at Corinth. And he kind of insinuates that there was a third letter that we don't have a record of. But the two letters that we have is part of the canon of Scripture. These two letters were inspired of God. Given what was going on in Corinth, I could probably think that Paul maybe wrote maybe ten letters to them. Because they really, they really had issues. And he starts off, I want you to see at the very start of the very first letter he wrote in First Corinthians, how he's expressing the relationship between the Trinity and what's going on in, and what he needs to see going on in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 1, three, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, two, two members of the Trinity, but hold on. He's going to get to all of them before this thing is even close to being over. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always think my God, and when you see God stand alone, it's a reference to the Father. I think my God the Father for his grace given to you in God the Son, Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God the Father thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not like any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait. For our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end. There's, again, this this sense of God is for you. He's he's got your back. He's all around you. He's your security. He's your protection. So he says that you don't, that he will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Again, reference to the Father. He is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now just stay with me for a moment because it gets even more rich in the triune God on our, ha- <clears throat> on our side. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 12 because when he begins to lay out the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I want you to see something that he does at the start of chapter 12. This is verse 4. Before he gets to naming the nine gifts of the Spirit, Kind of tells you how involved the Trinity is in it. Here it is. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but it's the same Lord, referring to Jesus. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one is the same God the Father at work. Now to each one is to each one the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good these are called the gifts of the holy spirit the holy spirit is operating in these gifts but the way they're administered and the way they function has the father and the son involved so you see the triune of god is all wrapped up in our spiritual lives in the church is always meant to be that way not a focus uh, too much focus on either one but the reality that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in our lives. If God is for you, if the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is for you, <clears throat> what or who could be against you? But don't miss verse 7. What is the purpose for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in all these different services and administrations and gifts? That when one manifestation is given, it is not for personal edification. It's for the common good of everybody. Now, this week I was reminded many times because I I just had such a great week with the Lord, seeking His face, not letting any out external stuff cloud my mind. And when uh, Brother Strader kind of introduced the work of the Holy Spirit in, in a message in Lakeland First Assembly, when he says, daily we ought to walk in the Spirit, daily we ought to pray in the Spirit, It became even more profound that he wants to do that in our lives on a daily basis, the ministry of the Spirit to us. So when we get to the conclusion of his last letter to the church at Corinth, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. And all through there, Paul is addressing the working of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in the church at Corinth, and they needed. They needed the revelation of God. They had so many problems going on. They had, He was correcting them right and left. There was like chaos in the church, but he wasn't giving up on them. He was wanting them to know what the purpose of God was. So he's not finished about this, about the Trinity. And when we get to the end of 2 Corinthians 13, I want you to look at verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, this is his closing statement. Two letters. Rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you all. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't do that. We don't even shake hands anymore. But people in Argentina, poor people in Argentina, the poor church in Argentina, the COVID must have really put a kink in them because their handshake was holy kiss because Ron Pitts and the missionary when we were there and my son was a teenager and we had teenagers on that trip for a construction mission he told us all he says now when these people come up to you they're going to kiss you on the cheek and this is their way of shaking their hand and all the teenagers and especially the teenage boys all looked at each other and says nobody's going to be kissing on me there's no no man and he's said, it's kind of like you extending your hand and someone not shaking your hand. To their credit, those boys weathered being kissed on the cheek by other teenage guys and other people. But he says, we, we need to greet each other. This, way. this is a common thing for Middle Eastern people to do. And then he says, all God's people send their greetings. And watch verse 14. This is how he finishes. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He finishes with this blessing that the Trinity is bestowing grace, the love of God is coming out of the Father, and the communion, the fellowship, the koinonia, the sharing together in the Holy Spirit. Listen, the gifts of the Holy Spirit was not meant for just individual usage. It's meant for the church as a whole, for us to be edified, for us to be encouraged, for us to grow, for us to sense the voice of the Lord. These gifts are supposed to be active. Let me finish with these words. The church should be above disunity. When we're not walking in the unity as the people of God, it's it's not a reflection of the triune God working in us, right? And all this stuff that's going on, tragically, the church is is weathering an assault on unity. I don't think I have to tell you that. And when we decided that, that the Sunday after the election we was going to have communion, I was like, we need this even more. We need this fellowship, the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the communion of the lord that we all share in the grace of god and the love of god so i want to take you this is my final word i don't want to give you and so i have zipped through it pretty good ephesians chapter 4 he says as a prisoner for the lord then i urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received and be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I think repentance may be very well in order. In the church today. How much have we strived to keep the unity of the spirit. Through the bond of peace. He said make every effort in verse 3. To keep the unity of the spirit. Make every effort. To stay unified. If you read all of 2 Corinthians 13. You'll see Paul warning them. He warned them. (laughs) He said in verse 10. This is why I write these things when I'm absent that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. I think he was kind of like warning them that, I hope you just read this letter and do what you're supposed to do because I don't want to be really hard on you when I get there. He said, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. He said, my purpose is not to tear you down. It's not to be harsh with you. It is to be a loving teacher, an instructor, to point out where we're wrong. I think one of the best qualities that we can have today is the tolerance to be corrected. Tolerance to be corrected. Now, there's, there could be a real resistance to anybody accepting correction because they take it personally and sometimes as parents we had to kind of say i'm not i'm not attacking you as a person i'm addressing your actions this is different you you have value to us but when you do something outside the boundaries and you agree it's outside the boundaries not i'm I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't address that, and this is what he's saying i wouldn't i wouldn't care about the Corinthian church at all if I wasn't getting real firm with you he said i don't want to come with harshness i want I want God to work unity in you and healing in you, But verse eight in that chapter really kind of defines like a principle that we need to embrace for we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. Truth is a standalone principle. It, it remains. Not their truth and our truth, but truth stands alone. And I think everyone, every person like me that stands behind the pulpit today across the world and preaches and teaches, God holds us accountable for what we tell you. How we handle the Word of God, how we present the Word of God to you. Are we speaking truth to you? Are we giving you what the Lord wants you to hear today? And that weighs upon me mightily. Every day, every Wednesday night, every Sunday, when I stand up here, is, it weighs on me what my responsibility is. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I want the praise team to come up, and um, I want us to just focus our lives on the Lord. You know, and again, we go to 1 Corinthians 11 when we have communion because Paul has to correct them about how they were having communion. You know, if you read, it looked like they were turning communion into a party. And that they were not drinking from the common cup. They were, they were drinking. Drinking too much. And he says, you've, tur- you've turned the Lord's Supper into something that was never meant to be. It's not a party. It's to honor him. And so he's having to correct them even how they're having Communion. Now, you kind of give them a little bit of space because Corinth was probably the worst culture that a church could be birthed out of. Paul never writes them off as not being a Christian. He never t- he never tells them. In fact, the reason he, he, he speaks so direct to them, he said, because you are believers and you can't be doing this. It was kind of like they had these spaces in their mind that they were ignorant of the truth. They, they thought they could blend their old culture with the new culture of, the Lord and, and kind of mesh the two and he's having to address it again and again. I'm not so sure that that we are not having that tendency today. That we come to church on a Sunday morning, we hear the word of God, and when we leave, do we even bother to say, Lord, I need you to speak to me Monday. I need to speak I need you to speak to me Tuesday. How I handle my life, how I'm doing life. Am I pleasing you, Lord? Do I have enough knowledge of you to know what I'm doing is wrong? Or the Holy Spirit has already prompted me that you shouldn't have that attitude. If there's one thing that God deals with me on a constant basis is attitude. And it's kind of prompt. It's like, that's, that's the wrong attitude to have. And he wants the Holy Spirit to, the Father, the Son, all want to be engaged in our growth and who we are as believers. So I want you to stand with me. And I want us to begin to sing this worship song. And as we start singing, take time to go to the communion table and and get one of the cups and we'll have the Lord's Supper. Just a moment.